Good morning. I want to introduce you to someone right off the bat here, um, Malachi Coleman. He is a high school uh, football star from East Lincoln High School in Lincoln, Nebraska. He made the news recently. Some of you may have heard this. It was new to me, but uh, he made the news recently because he signed to play football for the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers, Pastor Kurt's favorite team. Malachi and his little sister were abandoned by their mother when he was only five years of age. And the next day, the very next day, they found themselves in the foster care system where they were abused and shuttled from house to house for three or four years. When Malachi was nine years old, he and his sister were adopted by Craig and Miranda Coleman, but by that time, a lot of damage had been done to both of them. After three or four years in the foster care system, Craig says that Malachi was a broken kid. And in an interview, Miranda added, he lived for today and only today and nothing mattered. Malachi himself would tell you that he was mean and selfish and simply refused to be kind to anyone. Fast forward a few years and something had changed. In December of 2021, the Nebraska School Activities Association changed the rules. They allowed high school athletes like Malachi to profit off their name, their image, and their likeness. And so Malachi who was a high school junior in the winter of 2022, saw his chance. He went to a local restaurant. He proposed they promote a burrito in his name. The burrito was called the Giverito. And he would donate 100% of his profits from the deal to advocate for the foster care system in Lincoln, Nebraska. What changed in Malachi Coleman? How did it change? And what does all of this have to do with what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 6. Before we go there, <clears throat> would you join with me once more as we together read Psalm 27, verse 4, our launching pad for this series, all together. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This morning, Palm Sunday, we are on our last sermon in this series. And all along we've been using that verse, Psalm 27, verse 4, and it's three movements to explore the one thing that the psalmist asks of the Lord. To dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. We've used each of those verbs, those phrases, as hyperlinks to other passages in scripture that might have something to say about them or some way to nuance them for us. So this morning, we are going to zero in on one verse in what you heard read earlier in that passage as we consider what it might mean to seek the Lord in his temple. Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, God's righteousness, and all these things will be given, you, given to you as well. Our context here is the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in all of history. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, before all this gets, before what we read this morning, Jesus sets the stage for what he's going to do. He teaches us that we are not to treasure, to lay up treasures, to store up treasures for ourselves on earth where moths and vermin can destroy them and thieves can steal them. Rather, we are to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven where these things cannot happen. Then Jesus says something strange that does not seem to fit with everything he's just said or even what will come after it. He uses an ancient idiom that modern Western readers simply do not get, at least not with a lot of digging. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great 
is that darkness. In one version of the New Testament that you can find uh, online, <clears throat> in the Bible app and other places, uh, it comes with study notes. And notice I'm using quotes there. Little blocks within the text that a commentator tells you what to make of this passage. This is what it says about that passage. When Jesus speaks of eyes and light, he means that we should keep our eyes on God because the eyes are the windows to the soul. Eyes should not focus on trash, pornography, filth, or expensive things. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but <clears throat> wrong. As good as that advice is, it is not what is going on in this passage at all. Having a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye is not about purity. It's not about what we look at. It's about something else that perfectly fits with the larger context here concerning wealth and material goods and worry. In ancient Israel, to have a good eye or a healthy eye was to be generous. To have a bad eye or an unhealthy eye was to be stingy. The healthy eye and the unhealthy eye, then, are all about our relationship to money and material wealth, like everything else Jesus is saying in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, to put a bow on it, Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we can see in all three of these things, these images nuancing one another. Treasures, if we lay up our treasures on earth, we have an unhealthy eye that makes us stingy, therefore we are serving money and not God. If we lay up our treasures in heaven, we have a healthy eye, which means we are generous, we're serving God instead of money. But if we are not supposed to store up treasures on earth, we might ask, how will we manage? How will we live? How will we know that our needs are going to be met? We, we might start to worry. But Jesus has a better way in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothes? After this, Jesus gives us two examples from the natural world. God takes care of the birds of the air, and they don't worry. God clothes the flowers of the field, and they don't worry. So why should we? See, we're back to this nagging question that nips at our heels all through the Old Testament and right into the New. A question that has started in the Garden of Eden. Whom will you trust? God or the serpent? Will you trust that God loves you and cares for you and is able to take care of you? Or will you, like Adam and Eve, take matters into your own hands and make a mess of things? So when it comes to our anxiety about money, and things, and having what we need, Jesus exhorts us in verses 31 and 32, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We can be like the pagans, literally the word just says nations there, the nations who do not worship God, they worship other gods. We can use up all our time, all our energy, storing up treasures on earth, serving money, instead of serving God, being stingy, instead of being generous, full of anxious worry. Or, or we can trust that God already knows what we need and that God will supply it. So Jesus shows us a different way to live, and now we get to the verse. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well.
Jesus says here, the way we look at it, we are to seek two things, but there is actually a third thing hidden here. Those two things are the kingdom and God's righteousness. But within the word righteousness, the way our translations have it, there is a third thing hidden. The word righteousness translates the Greek word dikaiosune, which means both moral piety and character and just action. It means both moral piety and character and just action towards others. To be righteous, to be righteous is to be right with God and to do right toward others. The Greek root word that this comes from means equity, impartiality, fairness of character, and action. And it is associated with the Greek noun, dikostes, which, which means a judge, an arbitrator, or an umpire. All of this speaks of justice, which is the third thing that is hidden from us in our English translations. The word translated as righteousness can also mean justice. Later, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus will accuse the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of neglecting, quote, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. What we are to seek, then, is right character in relationship to God and right and just actions in relationships with others. What we are to seek, then, is right character and relationship to God and right and just action in relationship to others. To seek God is to seek three things, righteousness, justice, and God's kingdom. When it comes to the kingdom, the mistake we often make is to think that the kingdom of God is only found, only entered into in the hereafter. That we don't enter God's kingdom until we die. But that is not the biblical understanding of God's kingdom. In an email that I subscribed to, uh, I was informed that last Saturday, March the 25th, was the 25th anniversary of the publishing of Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And the subject uh, line of that email described it as, quote, the only conspiracy that gets better with age. I have read Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, three or four times. And I remember the very first time I read it, uh, my first reading was, I decided I wanted to kill two birds with one stone. I said, you know, I need to exercise, but I really want to read. So I got on the treadmill, and I held the book, and I walked as I read. And I had a choice. I can keep up with the treadmill, or I can keep up with the reading. And I chose to keep up with the reading and fell off of the treadmill. So I'm going to quote... Dallas Willard a few times this morning. I'm going to do it for two reasons. I'm going to do it because I want to celebrate the anniversary of this book, which is a seminal book. It's an important book. And then I want to celebrate the powerful impact that book had on my life, continues to have on my life, and has on the lives of so many others. Much of what Dallas Willard says in the book directly relates to what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. The author of the email summed up the book's basic teaching with four points in one very packed sentence. The eternal kind of life starts now. The kingdom of God is a present reality. The gospel is more than sin management. And Jesus is not only our divine savior, but our brilliant teacher. When Jesus tells us to seek first God's kingdom, he is not merely talking about receiving forgiveness for our sins and the promise 
of an eternal reward. He is teaching us that we can begin to live an intimate, God-centered, joyful, world-changing life even now. We can begin to live an intimate, joy-filled, God-centered, world-changing life even now. We do not have to wait. Why would we want to? Entering the kingdom of God is not about getting us into heaven when we die. It's about getting heaven into us even now. It's about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now. Too many of us think that the Christian faith is only about taking care of the sin problem. The the gospel of sin management is what Dallas Willard called it. That is, we get forgiveness for our sins so that it's our ticket into eternal life. In The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas links sin management to scanning the barcode of your local grocery store. To come to faith, for many of us, or how we were taught, is all about the barcode. If we have the right barcode on us, when we pass over the scanner that says whether we get to go to heaven or not, it will beep, and we'll be tossed into the great grocery bag of heaven. The theology of the barcode, then, is that it's not necessary to become a good Christian to be forgiven. The theology of the barcode is it's not necessary to become a good Christian to be forgiven. Then Dallas adds this, quoting, that's the main point of the barcode, and it is correct. It is not necessary to become a good Christian to be forgiven. That's not how it works. But God has so much more for us beyond forgiveness. You see, our faith is not only about the destination, it's about the journey. It's about a way of life, a kingdom way of life that demonstrates that the kingdom of God is at hand and invites others to join us in that kingdom. Near the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us this in verse, chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, there's that word again that has two meanings, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. God's forgiveness, God's promise of eternal life with him are free to us for the asking. Bless you. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith in what Christ Jesus has done for us. Not, I'm not pushing against that at all. That is true. So if all of this is new to you and you wonder what you must do to get God to love you, the answer is nothing. God already loves you. If you want to know what you have to do to be forgiven by God, the answer is you ask for it and you receive it. You confess that you need God. You confess that you have sinned. You ask for forgiveness and you receive it. We do not earn our salvation or our forgiveness. They are a gift. However, entering heaven when we die is not the same thing as living in the kingdom of God now. Entering heaven when we die is not the same thing as living in the kingdom of God now. Entering the kingdom of God here and now takes some effort, some intention, and some training. Put another way, our salvation, our final destination is not in doubt. What is in question is whether we will get to enjoy the kingdom of God on this earth or merely be satisfied with just getting by. 
Life in God's kingdom must be experienced in order to be known, to be understood. Mere information, mere knowledge does not do it for us. We need to be trained in these things. And often, we have to step into something and do it in order to truly know it. And this takes us back to Malachi Coleman. One day after a long argument with his mother, uh, Miranda, she insisted that he simply learn to show kindness to other people. He just learned to be kind. She had a long list of things he could do that would be kind, show kindness to other people. And she was running through that list, and Malachi said no to absolutely everything she said. His wounds were too deep. Finally, she said, can you hold the door open for someone? And he replied, I can hold the door open for someone. One door led to another door, led to another door, until eventually over time, one Sunday at church, he held the door open for everybody coming to church. Out of the doing, out of the practicing of kindness, doing kind things whether he felt like doing it or not, he learned kindness, and it has become his passion. It has become a part of him. It is a part of who he is. He became a different kind of person. And so by the time the Nebraska School Activities Association changed the rules, Malachi Coleman had become the kind of person who could show incredible kindness to people. The kind of person who would give away large sums of money to ensure that other foster children had it better than he and his sister had it. We seek God's kingdom. We seek God's righteousness and justice by choosing to do the things God tells us to do. Sometimes whether we feel it or not. And we do it by following Malachi Coleman's lead. We choose to step into a practice or a habit or an act of service that honors God or serves others. And as we do, we will be transformed. There's an engineer named Destin Sandlin who's been experimenting with this idea of training and learning with with the help of a a backwards bicycle. A backwards bicycle, some of you have probably seen this on YouTube, is not a bicycle that goes backwards. It's a bicycle where the handlebars have been re-engineered so that if you turn the handlebars to the left, the wheel goes to the right. If you turn the handlebars to the right, the wheel goes to the left. Sounds like maybe you could make that work. You understand what you know, what you're supposed to do. But Sandlin has traveled around the world offering people $200 if they can ride the bike from there to here. Nobody can do it. Nobody can do it. The same was true of him when he first tried it. He couldn't do it. He came to realize that the knowledge about the bike and how it worked did not create understanding in terms of being able to do it. Knowledge about how the bike worked did not create the understanding to be able to ride it. Knowledge does not equal understanding, or for our purposes, knowledge does not equal transformation. Destin made this a personal challenge for himself. He practiced five minutes every day for eight months when he was finally able to ride that bike. It's not pretty, but he was able to ride it. 
But guess what? Once he taught himself to ride the backwards bike, he could no longer ride a normal bike. (laughs) There are lessons here, people. This is the power of training. This is the way we learn to seek the kingdom of God and God's righteousness by doing it. By engaging the things of God in prayer, by regularly engaging in scripture, by practicing loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, whether we feel it or not. Once we are trained, we will actually find it difficult to do otherwise because that has become who we are. Once you have been trained enough in following Jesus, you will find it difficult to do anything other than follow Jesus because that's who you are. It's not about trying. It's about training. So I've linked the Soul Training page in our, on our website in the Bible app live event. I've also linked uh, a video about the backwards bicycle. Um, you really need to watch that to get a sense of how it works. If you don't have the Bible app, this is what it looks like. You can get it wherever you get your apps. Download it, turn on location services. If you click on more and then events, we should pop right up. There's lots of stuff about what's happening at ECC there, and uh, there's questions and resources stemming from the sermon this morning as well. In addition to those soul training exercises that we're linking and that we've told you about before, I invite you to watch for opportunities. Let's take a page from Malachi Coleman's book. Watch for opportunities simply to show kindness to people and to serve others, for it is in the doing that we seek, and it is a seeking that we find what God wants us to find. Another lesson I've learned from Dallas Willard was that we engage in these spiritual practices, these soul training exercises, to train ourselves simply so that we will become the kind of people for whom kingdom-shaped living is simply second nature. That's what I was talking about before. We do these things, and at first they are work. They, They take effort, but in the long run, they simply become who we are. That's like learning to ride a bicycle, backwards or forwards. For Malachi Coleman, the first few doors may have been work for him. But in the end, opening doors for others, and so much more, brought him joy and transformed him. And we don't have to do it all at once. We simply have to open one door at a time. Engage one or two simple practices at a time. And before we know it, it's no longer work. It's even easy. When that happens, when that happens, Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30 will make total sense. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Amen. On this Palm Sunday, we enter into Holy Week. Let us look to Jesus who laid down his life for us. As we enter into Holy Week, let us look to Jesus, who also sought God's kingdom by surrendering to God's will. 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who carried the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, all for the joy that was set before him. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we are reminded that were it not for the birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God would not be open to us at all. And so here in this service, we pause to remember the sacrifice Jesus made for us in giving himself up to be put to death on Good Friday. Jesus invites all who know him or want to know him to come to the table. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whether you are a member of ECC or not, whether you are in the room or online, you are welcome at this table.